The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from Alive Mind Cinema, devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality, and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life at AliveMindCinema.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is a special edition of Essential Conversations. Last October, I attended the Parliament of World's Religions in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Parliament, a modern version of the original gathering of religious leaders from around the world that took place in Chicago, Illinois in 1893, is the gathering place for the global interfaith movement. The Salt Lake City Parliament was attended by 10,000 people, and it featured hundreds of lectures, seminars, and cultural events. I attended the Parliament as a journalist for Spirituality and Health magazine, interviewing dozens of presenters who were representatives of a wide variety of religions, some known by everyone and some unknown by most. And over the next weeks and months, we will feature some of these interviews in Extended Essential Conversations podcasts. As you will tell from the background noise, these interviews were conducted in the thick of things. In fact, there was no thin of things at the Parliament. Multiple events were conducted at the same time in the huge convention center venue, and despite our best efforts, finding a quiet place to talk was nearly impossible. So I encourage you to allow the ambient sounds to be part of your experience. Indeed, those bystanders who huddled around us as we spoke heard what you're about to hear, background noise and all. Our interviews were conducted amid the hubbub of spiritual seekers conversing with Buddhist and Catholic priests, Buddhist and Protestant ministers, rabbis, swamis, yogis, gurus, imams, sheikhs, lay people, academics, and fellow seekers of all stripes. It was an amazing experience. And after a while, the sounds of spiritual seeking created a wonderful and comforting environment. There's something promising and hopeful about being surrounded by people for whom spirituality and religion are seen not as weapons of contention and war, but as vehicles for cooperation and peace. In fact, if there's one thing that the Parliament offered, it was hope. And we plan to share some of that hope with you with these special editions of Essential Conversations. Today, we feature two women who have devoted their lives to deep spiritual seeking and transformation, both personal and planetary. Our first conversation is with Elizabeth Ursik. Dr. Ursik received her Master's of Divinity from Yale Divinity School and her Ph.D. in Religious Studies from Arizona State. And she teaches at both Mesa Community College and the California Institute of Integral Studies. She's currently co-chair of the Women's Caucus at the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature, and her newest book is called Women, Ritual, and Power, 
Placing Female Imagery of God in Christian Worship. I spoke with Elizabeth about the use of imagery in worship, the different qualities of worship arising from female and male imagery, and how to introduce female imagery into the conventional male imagery-dominated religious settings. I'm talking with Elizabeth Ursick. She's the author of Women, Ritual, and Power, Placing Female Imagery of God in Christian Worship. Elizabeth, thank you for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Rami, I'm very happy to be here. So we've known each other for a while, so you want to share mm-hmm. how we, our connection? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this book, Women, Ritual, and Power, Placing Female Imagery of God in Christian Worship, came to pass because I was researching Christian communities that actually pray with female language and female imagery during their worship. And one of the groups that I covered in this book is the Daughters of Wisdom. um, They have Wisdom House, which is a retreat house in Litchfield, Connecticut, and they love Rami. (laughs) They have had you in multiple times because you are um, expert in many things, um, but specifically wisdom scripture. And so it is the wisdom literature that has this female imagery with Sophia in the Greek passages, Um, to personify God or a feminine aspect of God or a femaleness of God in Scripture. And so they have wisdom in their title. Sophia means wisdom. And so they very much embrace this imagery, and that's how Rami and I got to know each other. And how long have you been drawn to this Sophia wisdom manifestation of the divine? Well, you know, um, there's always a good story, the book behind the book, right? Right. (laughs) So um, I grew up Roman Catholic, and so I was very familiar having images of Mary around me as I was growing up. And then as I got older, I wanted to seek my own spirituality, and I had many years, in, about five years in Sedona, Arizona, where I got exposed to all different meditation styles, all different ways of, of invoking sacredness. And there was a lot about the land and a lot about Mother Gaia in that kind of a context. And at a certain point, I got called back into my religious tradition, and specifically through the female uh, medieval mystics, and a lot of their prayer life and a lot of imagery from that time is about female imagery of God. Now, I hadn't grown up with any of that, so as a being raised Christian Catholic, I just had never heard of that before. Well, while I was in Sedona, I'm also a musician. I play cello and piano, and I recorded an album that got some radio airplay on Hearts of Space. It's kind of quieter metaphysical music. And it actually got me a full fellowship at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. So I found myself um, at this Yale Institute of Sacred Music studying religion and art. And when I was doing that, I came to discover that there was this imagery in the Bible and that there had been this poetry, there had been this hymn writing, there had been this prayer work that had been done at different times of history. And there were currently being a lot of books written, including books that you had written about this language and about this. So I asked the question, why are we not seeing it very much? And it comes down to what is actually performed in what I would say congregational worship. Um, when the whole community comes together and worships and to actually picture that, to speak about it, to sing about it. Um, In a Christian context, it would be on the altar. So um, that's what got me interested and I kept doing research on this 
and I decided that I wanted to find the groups that were doing it successfully and find out how they did it in order to pass on good tips and good ideas for other people who might read the book that might want to have that done at their congregation. So how difficult is it to, as the subtitle says, place female imagery of God into the worship? (laughs) Well, you know, anything, if the tradition is not to do it, anytime you introduce something new to tradition, um, there's definitely going to be resistance. And um, it requires what I discovered, it required four different things all these congregations had. One was that they had a charismatic worship leader. They had somebody who had some authority over the ritualizing to at least allow some experimentation. If not, maybe be a proponent and, and an advocate for it. Number two, there had to be people around that person to help create these new worship styles because Um, in liturgy or ritualizing, um, it takes effort to have the right hymns, to have the right prayers. And if it's not right there in your prayer book, then you need a a fair amount of creativity and support. Also having a core group of congregational support that would help the worship leader in terms of getting everybody to understand why this is important. So that's number two. Number three is um, having some people that would actually speak publicly, either to friends or in a larger context, that they actually experience God this way. So if you can... How, let me interrupt you for a second. How difficult is that? Because that's very risky, I would think, for people to get up and say, I experienced God as mother. Or... Yes. Um, well, you know, what's interesting is ritual and personal sharing seem to go hand in hand. Hmm. So if you have one Sunday where for the first time you pray to God who is both our mother and father or to a motherly God, a motherly father God, actually one of the communities does. Um, And people say, I've never heard of that. That doesn't sound right. And if their friend then turns to them and says, this really spoke to me because once I actually had a dream or had a prayer experience or had this enveloping maternal feeling surround me. And when I hear mother as a word to describe what God is, it comes very close to some of my most profound experiences. So that's how some of it happens. But I would have to say, quite honestly, it initially happens person to person. Um, to say, okay, we're going to do uh, open mic night for anyone who's... <laughs> I don't know that that's exactly the first step to take. Right. And that was the third of the three, the four. Of the third. So we had charismatic leadership, um, a, a small, tight community within the community that would help with this. Number three, people who would actually speak and say that that is how they've experienced God. And number four, a commitment to evangelization. So um, to be timid about this is... Um, it's okay to have an experiment, but what I found in these communities, they felt that it wasn't just them wanting to do this, but that the destiny of the congregation or that God wanted this to happen in some manner, that there was this push in Christian terms, the Holy Spirit um, speaking through them, and that's what evangelization is. Some of the Christianities are better at it than others uh, in having a culture of that, Um, But in all four cases, they all seem to have that. So um, that's what I would say to some communities wanting to think about it. um, That this evangelization ties into actually, I think, the largest aspect, which is feeling a destiny that this must happen 
And that way, any resistance doesn't stop them. It actually fuels them. So I'm assuming you feel that that way, that, that this is this must happen. Um, well, I'm a religious studies scholar and I'm an academic. So, you know, we always take a big step back after we I can tell you how they feel about it. Okay. Um, what I feel most important and passionate about is that our imaginations need to be open and need to be given permission that if God presents to us this way, then we are to accept these kinds of images. I'm a spiritual director, Rami, which is something in the Catholic and Anglican tradition. We now have Jewish um, spiritual directors and other faiths, um, but we're listening people into their faith life. And to us, I have yet to meet a spiritual director that hasn't said to me, people present all kinds of experiences of their from their prayer life and of God. And what I notice in spiritual direction is if we leave an open space for that, people will deepen and get closer to whatever that relationship is for them. And imagery is a big part of it. So I completely affirm and support all these communities to feel that this gender piece, this femaleness piece is super important. And what I notice with people is generally the image either is something about their identity so tying identity with spirituality, with social roles, or it could be something very different. Um, some of these groups have trans members and in claiming femaleness in Christianity, they're saying otherness as a symbol for otherness. Yeah, very interesting. So the, the, the what Andrew Harvey calls the return of the Divine Mother, you know, <laughs> bringing this imagery into not just Christian settings, but, but other settings. When you look at the texts that these come from in the you know, Judeo-Christian tradition, meaning not just the wisdom books of the Hebrew Bible, Job and Ecclesiastes and uh, Proverbs, but the, the uh, apocryphal books like Sirach and Wisdom of Solomon. So when I look at them, let me put it this way, when I look at them, I see a really radical alternative to the the theology that you find in the rest of the Bible. That this is, the stuff that comes through Lady Wisdom is, seems to me, non-hierarchical, uh, it's, it's universalist, uh, it, it talks about, you know, um, it, it's, not, it's not this tribal thing that it's all about winning whatever prize there is at the end, it's simply yes. about becoming more wise yourself. Yes. So when, when you see this happening in, in various places, do you see a, tra a, a transition, a change going on, transformation in, in, the, in the way the religion is presented, the way it's understood, the way people are, are living it? I would say that in all these cases, the whole community, if they embrace it this way, uh, feel more empowered. Okay, empowered. Yeah, because... Um, especially in traditional Christianities where there's a priesthood, um, a lot of times these types of worship, because it requires so many people to participate to create maybe new ways of doing it or speaking about it or identifying with it, um, there is much more a sense that everybody's voice matters. Everybody's person and the way they present matters. And um, one of the communities, it was really wonderful. Um, some of the older women weren't all that excited you know, um, so they may not exactly say the prayers, but because the community was honoring femaleness in a new way, they were always honored as grandmothers. Mm. 
and once certain ceremonies were being done to honor some of the wisdom of the older women in the community, what uh, what was recognized is that these women start to speak more oh, and share their wisdom. So there is a lot of permission giving when you can imagine and conceive of deity as the full range of membership of your community. So you know, as someone who sort of who studies looks at comments on you know what's happening with religion, uh, I'm look, I'm thinking about the the Catholic Church couple of I, I think it was the, maybe it was the Pope Benedict. I think he elevated Mary to I don't know if it was officially done or he just started calling her co-creatrix. Yeah. So that so that you're getting this almost I'm overstating it but for effect I guess but a Shiva Shakti kind of thing like you have in Hinduism where every male aspect of divinity has a female consort so that you have this holistic understanding of the divine. So he elevated her that way and then I think it's Pope Francis who made a Hildegard of Bingham a doctor of the church gave her that and she was a saint I think she's a saint and now a doctor of the yes. church and again here's a woman who does a tremendous amount of female imagery around of, of, of the divine uh, do you think things are, are happening behind the scenes that are transforming the world's religions I mean I could give you examples from other faiths but yes. sticking with this one well I would say that um, certainly that's my hope and okay. I and I would say that when there's cracks in the doorways, and I, I don't mean to say that it's a big old doorway, but you understand the metaphor. Just when you see an opening and more light shines through with a new way to imagine God, um, I celebrate that. And especially if what that does is start to mirror the full complement of the worshiping community in a new way, in a substantial way and in an honoring way. So uh, for that, um, Hildegard has been this beautiful, uh, being a musician. Um, right, she was a musician. Absolutely. An and one of the first major named musicians coming out of Gregorian chant to think that a female actually was that, plus everything else she did with her art, with her drama, with her, all that expression. She actually um, did plays. And she wrote them with the virtues so that all of her nuns had parts to play. That was one of the reasons. Because if she just used the biblical stories, as Katie Stanton showed, there's a lot of men in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's true. For your audience that doesn't know, Katie Stanton wrote the women's Bible back. Um, she found all the passages that addressed women and showed that there wasn't that much. And it was part of the first wave of the women's movement uh, that led up to the right to vote for women. Um, but anyway, that's what Hildegard did. So in some ways, doing this kind of worship today is following in her footsteps. So a couple of other questions come to mind. When uh, you mentioned the Daughters of Wisdom early in the conversation, they, I don't know how they did it, but they had me sent to Rome. Oh. And I went to their, every six years they have this leadership meeting where they pass leadership on from one generation to the next or one you know team to the next and i was invited to come and talk about what i call the woman of a thousand faces sort of a riff on uh, joseph campbell's the hero of a thousand faces and the they they tend to associate uh, wisdom with mary that was sort of their uh, focus and i my my job as i saw it was to say look there there are these goddess figures these wisdom figures in every tradition and I went through it, you know, with them in some detail. And then we had a quiz. And the quiz was, I read them unlabeled texts from different traditions. And I changed, I made everything bland so you couldn't, if I was talking about Kali, I just made it she, so you mm -hmm. couldn't tell. 
And then I asked them to identify if they could, which text came from which religion, and if there was any text they didn't agree with. And except for one that was Catholic that they knew by heart and I just didn't realize, they couldn't, they couldn't label the religious tradition. And they said, no, we agree with all of them. So my message to them was, okay, you have one manifestation of Lady Wisdom, but there are many others. So just laying that as the groundwork, do you get a sense, because we're at the Parliament of World Religions, that working through this feminine imagery, this female imagery of the divine in all these different traditions, reveals a unity that the male imagery not only denies, but maybe militarily <laughs> rejects, you know, really tries to fight against. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Very interesting. Um, I've got a couple levels to that. One is, um, yes, I, when you think that we have a, a universal concept of womanhood or something like that, or um, I think that's something we'll find in all cultures or mothers in all cultures, so mothering aspects could be similar in all. Um, I can also, as a bit of a critique, since most of the world's religions have a very dominant male aspect to it, Sometimes when the feminine is brought in, like just, oh, it's got the feminine. Oh, it must be a divine mother. Oh, it, you know, as a way of kind of saying, oh, that's what that is. Okay. And also, um, you know, 12 guys and one gal at the table kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must be the divine feminine. Um, so, you know, I don't want to diminish that because, and for many people, that's actually their theology, that it is one uh, female presence that is... Mother Gaia and, and that kind of thing that shows up in different traditions. So I don't want to, I don't want to diminish that, but I do want to point out the particularity is important and takes so don't you lose down the uniqueness. I would the, say the greater unity. Okay, yeah, great. and back to the comment about uh, uh, mediatrix creatrix for Mary. Um, the Church has not gone beyond the traditional Trinity. So Mary, as elevated as she is and as revered as she is. While some would like to see it in a partnership, not yet. Um, and I would say for those that are, um, if you're not actually a traditional Catholic, that's actually you've got a tremendous amount of art. You can actually come into your Christian tradition, and if you're not this traditional Christian or Catholic, um, it's a way to be very proud of whatever Christian roots you have, because there is all this incredible imagery. Um, go into the Eastern Orthodox Church; it's even greater. There it is, Sophia. There it is, Haggai, Sophia. And their basilicas often have this great Sophia, you know, in the ceiling or in yeah. the back altar. So um, anybody who wants to relate through imagery, it's absolutely there. But I do want to recognize that for those like the Daughters of Wisdom who are operating within the Catholic Church, the idea of just throwing out, saying, well, of course, it should be a male-female as the creator of the universe— isn't really the traditional Catholic teaching. Right, that, so. that, that is clear. All right, thank you for making sure we got that. <laughs> we got this straight. We're speaking with Elizabeth Ursic. She is the author of Women, Ritual, and Power, 
Placing Female Imagery of God in Christian Worship. Elizabeth, thank you very much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you very much for having me, Romy. My pleasure. So you were just listening to my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Ursik. She is the author of Women, Ritual, and Power, Placing Female Imagery of God in Christian Worship. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and you'll be interested in finding more about Dr. Elizabeth Ursik's work. And you can do that at her website, elizabethursik.com. My second guest is Rabbi Ellen Bernstein. Ellen received her rabbinical ordination from the Rabbinical School of Hebrew College and currently serves as the spiritual advisor and rabbi at Hampshire College. Ellen is the founder of Shomrei Adama, the first national Jewish environmental organization, and she's the author of numerous books, most recently Splendor of Creation, a Biblical Ecology. I spoke with Ellen about how to read the Bible, especially the book of Genesis, through an ecological lens, and how doing so reveals a dimension of environmental care and concern most readers of the Bible tend to miss. Most people who read the Bible tend to think that the Bible is anti-nature, all about human domination and exploitation of nature. But reading the Bible, especially the book of Genesis, through the eyes of Rabbi Ellen Bernstein, you'll find that there's a whole dimension that needs to be recovered and reclaimed in the Hebrew Scripture. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you. What was your presentation? You had two. So yesterday I talked about reading the Bible ecologically. Today I was on a panel uh, called Ancient Earth Wisdom, and it had two folks who were pagan and a Yoruba priestess and a Catholic woman and myself. So yesterday, your presentation was just you, and you were talking about reading the Bible ecologically. So help us understand what that means. I feel like within the Bible, there are many voices, and it's possible to read the Bible ecologically, but most people don't do it because they don't have sort of enough of an ecological context in their minds and hearts to begin with. They don't have enough of a relationship to nature and the earth to even know where to begin, to, what questions to ask. So one of the things that I, I do is just even look at the number of times earth is mentioned in the Bible, and it's mentioned over 2,000 times. And that's just the word earth, Eretz. There's another word for earth, which is Adama, and that's also mentioned numerous times, but I can't give you the exact number. <laughs> so let me, let me just interrupt so yeah. our, our listeners understand. When, we, when uh, Rabbi says, she's talking about the Bible, you're talking about the Jewish I'm talking Bible. about the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. Scripture. Yeah, Hebrew, Hebrew Scripture. And so one of the things that I always do is talk about the first creation uh, narrative in the Bible, which is the various elements being created on the different days of the week. And I know a lot of people just think, well, why is she talking about Genesis 1? It's just a myth. And for me, it is a myth. And myths evoke truth. And I feel like there's incredible amount of truth in Genesis 1 and also that it is probably, if not the most famous, one of the most famous Bible stories. So let me, let me interrupt you, because that's really important. This notion that you're willing to say that, that Genesis is myth, but myth contains truth. Uh -huh. So you don't, it doesn't have to be literal or factual to contain truth. Right. right. Uh, how do you understand myth carrying truth? Where do you find the truth in the myth? Well, I mean, we'd have to talk specifically about Genesis 1. Yeah. Okay. 
So, for example, first of all, there are various elements that are created. And first, light is created. And then on the, on the second day, the air is created. On the third day, earth is created. The earth is separated from the waters. So you have the, the four elements that are arising just in the first few days of creation. So it feels there's this sense for me, a truth there that the habitats are there sort of being created before the, the rest of creation. Um, so you get the habitats and then, and then each of the habitats gives rise to the creatures that are going to live in those habitats. So for example, on the third day, the earth is created and, or the, or it's not actually created. It's divided out and sort of actually becomes earth or dry land and the text says god says let the earth give rise to let the earth bring forth uh, xyz the plants and um, the, the fruit trees and the grasses and on the sixth day it says let the earth bring forth the various animals the beasts the crawling creatures and what's interesting to me about that is it doesn't say let there be plants, let there be trees. It says, let the earth bring forth in both instances. And so there's a sense there that the earth is alive, um, just like in the Gaia hypothesis. Um, so there's a sense of the generativity of the earth. And again, that feels like a truth to me. So there's a passion around this material, not just, you're not just doing Bible study with the people here. You, you've been involved with environmental issues I don't know, decades, right? So there, there's this deep passion that you have for the environment, for the text, and you see them as necessary to one another to improve the quality of the environment. Why bother teaching the text? For me, the text is like poetry, and it's how we communicate with each other. And um, for me, Genesis 1 is incredible incredibly moving. I, I feel like it's an absolutely beautiful text, and I, I believe that it's really inspirational. And for me, the text opens up a conversation. It's, you know, it's a way, it's a, like a vehicle to engage with people. So what I do when I teach Genesis 1 is I don't just present it as, you know, frontally, but I have the group read the text with me. And I present a bunch of ecological principles together to begin with, and then uh, have, and then I read the Genesis one out loud, and see what pops up for people once they're thinking in an ecological framework to begin with. What comes up for them? How are they seeing the text new now? So, do you run into conversations that go counter to what you're trying to say? I mean, lots lots of people, I imagine, read Genesis one in a way that is almost antithetical to environmental harmony well i mean basically what i'm doing with people is we're going through the whole of genesis one so first we're looking at the goodness because on every day a dimension of creation is created and god says that it's good so we see the goodness the integrity of every single creation so that's number one on the third day we see all of these aspects that point to sustainability. On the third day, most people would say, if you asked sort of somewhat knowledgeable 
Jewish or Christian person, what's created on the third day, or even a child uh, uh, who's been to Sunday school, um, they might tell you that the trees and the forests are created on the first day, on the third day. In fact, the seeds are created on the third day. And so you have this sense of the importance of sustainability because the seeds is how, are how the different creatures and the, the plants and the trees are going to um, reproduce and sustain themselves for for an eternity. Um, so you have all these things that are in place that are good and positive about the creation. And then on the sixth day, you get the humans being created. And a lot of people have a hard time with Genesis 1.28 because in that verse, humanity is given dominion over everything that's been created. However, there's lots of ways of looking at dominion. And, uh, and the entire context of the story is that everything is good to begin with. And the earth is alive to begin with, even before humans are created. So the idea, and, and also humans are, are made in God's image. The idea that, that God gives humanity a mandate to sort of control nature after all this beautiful nature, God's just created all of this nature that's so important and the key to you know a sustainable world. The idea of seeing dominion as a negative thing, as a sort of a, an oppression of the earth, just seems like that's something that can say that are reading the text out of context. So I, I imagine you know how revolutionary this reading is. I, I mean, it really... My experience, just even here at the Parliament, is that people who have some minimal understand or knowledge of Genesis are saying, "Oh, it's it's." They see it as a problematic text. They're not seeing it the way you're seeing it. So, what's the reaction been when you show them that there's this incredible environmental sensitivity to the text, and that if we really took it to heart, again, even even mythically slash mythic truth as opposed to you know, literal fact. It would, it would change our relationship to nature. Has the response been positive, or are people pushing back and saying, no, the Bible is bad? Oh, no, I think, you know, 90%, 95% of the people that come to the sessions are really excited about it because, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who come may be lapsed Christians or lapsed Jews, and for them to see that there's, that this first text in their tradition actually is is inspirational around the earth. Uh, it's just really surprising to people and really exciting for people. I mean, there, there's also, you know, some people are very attached to wanting it to be negative for whatever reasons. You know, they're, they're attached to their readings of dominion as a, an oppressive text and that, that, that dominion is the problem. But that's only one ra- way of reading it. So when you say they're surprised... Is it because so few churches, synagogues read it this way or share this? Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of it is is the translation. And, for example, the word seed, you know, I don't have it, it my tran- my own translation in front of me, but the word, it in Genesis 1, 11 and 1, 12, the word, it, you know, it's generally it's translated something like, let the earth bring forth grasses and... Um, I'm not going to get the whole thing right, but in in the language in in the the literal translation is 
repeats the word seed three times in, in verse 11 and then another three times in verse 12. And most translations don't use, you know, they might use the word seed once. So you don't get this sense in those translations of the importance of seeds. Like there's this, you know. Yeah, let me, let me jump in because I, I hadn't thought about it this way either. It says seed bearing trees and That contain the seeds, seeds within sort of, it. Yeah. yeah. So my imagination goes to, well, there were trees, and then the trees had seeds, but you're seeing it, the seeds as primary, and that, because of that, we're talking about multi-generational, right. you know, I mean, millennia of, of you know, fertile, life-giving, uh, the earth as a, as, a, as a fertile, life-giving entity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's, that's again, and, it's, go ahead. No, and then uh, there's, there's other... There's other um, other language in the text that points to this understanding of sustainability. Um, everything, you know, you see over and over again the repetition of this uh, phrase uh, after its kind, that the the um, the trees and the grasses, and then the animals, um, the fish, the birds, and the uh, the crawling and creeping creatures they're all created after it's after their kind and there's this again what happens you know when we read the bible we always think about why is this language there and why is this language repeated because this is sense in judaism anyway that that the words all the words that are there are there for reason so like what are what are these words doing there and why so much repetition of this this phrase after their kind and it's the sense that the the species line is really important and this this sense of sustainability um, through the species line it's really fascinating so you've written several books can i just can i just say one other thing about sustainability so um another thing that i just i think is funny uh and interesting is if you ask most people who gets the first blessing in the bible um most people will say it's it's people you know, um, be fruitful and multiply. They'll say it's the people that get the first blessing. And in fact, it's not the people that get the first blessing. It's the fish and the birds. Um, and the blessing that they get is to be fruitful and multiply. Um, again, another teaching about sustainability, that there's a sense that, you know, fish lay millions of eggs, right? And and it's because, like, so many of them are going to get eaten or or killed or what or whatever you know um and so there needs to be sufficient um sufficient eggs so that there'll be enough fish for the next generation um so anyway it's so the whole the whole notion of blessing is another uh languaging of sustainability and the blessing to the fish isn't subservient to the blessing of people people weren't even there so it's not like we need lots of fish so that people can eat lots of fish. It's uh-huh. We need lots of fish because the, God wants lots of fish. Right. Yeah. So it's it's not as anthropocentric as people like to make it. Genesis one is absolutely not anthropocentric. It's theocentric. It's Genesis two that's anthropocentric. So um, and you know most most liberals tend to. Um, hate Genesis one and uh, privilege Genesis two. They don't see the beautiful aspects of Genesis 1. You've been listening to my interview with Rabbi Ellen Bernstein. 
She is the author of many books, but most notably in this context, Splendor of Creation, A Biblical Ecology. You can learn more about Rabbi Ellen's work at her website, ellenbernstein.org. You've been listening to a special edition of Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami, drawing from interviews that I did at the Parliament of World Religions last October. Please tune in next week as we continue with these special editions of the show, and where we'll be talking with Phil Goldberg. He's the author of American Veda, and Carolyn Hess and Alice Bathke, who represented the Baha'i faith at the Parliament. Support for Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami comes from Alive Mind Cinema, devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality, and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life at AliveMindCinema.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit SpiritualityHealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.